Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 427. A good yontif, being that this was Yud Kislev today, the Chag Ha'ula, the day of redemption of the Mitla Rebbe. We will speak about that, and as well as about the Parsha, this week's chapter by Yishlach, and many other interesting subjects generated through your powerful and stimulating and provocative questions. This program is dedicated in merit of Borg Binyomen Ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayasar Altais, Yukasil Ben Le Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todras Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altais. So let's get right into Yud Kislev. As I discussed last week, Yud Kislev is the day after Tes Kislev, which was yesterday, Shabbos the birthday, and the Yemilula yard site of the Mitla Rebbe, which was one of the reasons, because the yard site was the first year after the Geula, because the Geula was Yud Kislev Tavkov Pezayin, and Mitla Rebbe passed away, Yud Kislev Tavkov Pezayin, the Mitla Rebbe passed away, Tes Kislev Tavkov Peches. So literally, the first anniversary of the Geula was the first day after the Stalkus. So they didn't celebrate it with uh, the full pomp and circumstance, so to speak. But the years afterwards began to become much more celebrated. And of course, the Rebbe, especially in the later years, uh, but uh, throughout the, all the Rebbe's Nesias, but especially in the Mems, uh, the Rebbe would fabreng every time Yud Kislev in the weekdays and celebrate this Chag Ha So let's talk about that. And let's first begin, what was the Gula about? And an obvious question that arises. Let me read it. Why was the Mitla Rebbe arrested after the Alter Rebbe spreading of Chassidus was vindicated? So let's read it in detail. The question is that if the Alter Rebbe's arrest and trial in Russia, this we're talking about Yutas Kislev Tovkov Nuntes, and trial in Russia were the physical manifestations of a heavenly trial against the Alter Rebbe for teaching Chassidus, and the Alter Rebbe was ultimately exonerated, that means permission from Hashem was given to teach Chassidus. So how could the Mitla Rebbe be on trial in the heavenly courts for teaching Chassidus once it's already been determined that it's permissible? Some say it's because the Mitla Rebbe went further and taught even more Chassidus than his father. But logically, it doesn't seem to make sense. Once permission is allowed, period, end of story, the Mitla Rebbe did absolutely nothing wrong. But based on what transpired to the Mitla Rebbe for teaching more Chassidus, should we be worried that if we teach too much chassidus, there can be heavenly accusations against us, God forbid? How much is too much? When Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov to spread the wellsprings of chassidus, didn't he say, he didn't say, but be careful not to teach too much or, re- or elaborate on chassidus too deeply. If Rabbi Jacobson could discuss this on Sunday night podcast, that would be fantastic. Thank you. So it's a very good question, because being, again, the rest below is only a reflection of what's going on above. So the bottom line is this. First of all, in base Rebbe brings, and the Rebbe cites it in Nasikh, I believe Shabbos Pasha Vayetze, which was Yud Kislev Tovshin Mem Zayin. Yeah, Tovshin Mem Zayin. That the 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 Gzeda Lamaila the kpeda, so to speak, the challenge in heaven, the Alter Rebbe was on the spreading of chassidus. And the challenge of the Mitla Rebbe was on the concept of a Rebbe. 
So it's a different exoneration, a different vindication. So that is number one. Number two, the spreading of chassidus is the spreading of teda. So let's make it clear. Let's ask the same question to Altareb. What's wrong with spreading teda? Wasn't the world created the whole world was created for teda, teda to come and transform the world into a home for the divine. So isn't that the whole point of teda? To learn it, to spread it, to teach it, to disseminate it? Primus teda is part of teda. And on the contrary, it's even a deeper part. And it comes too deep to deal with also transforming the darkness. That's one of the reasons Gilead Chassidus came in later generations. It's a taste of the Geula. Like on Erev Shabbos on Friday, we, um, we uh, taste from the foods of Shabbos. So why would that be a problem? The answer is precisely because of its power. Just as we say, for example, Adam and Chava, two people, they were asked not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And according to some opinions, the tree of knowledge was a grapevine. Had they waited a few hours, it says in Svarim, they would have made Kiddush on this, on the same grapevine, on that wine. They couldn't control themselves three hours. But remember how high the stakes were. Because had they controlled themselves, Mashiach would have come. So the Abishta created a world with a Helen Vahesta, a concealment. Those that want a mistake can make a mistake, an agnostic universe. And you can imagine two human beings on earth is the collective Yetzirah of eight billion people today. All standing up to do anything possible to stop other Machava. Now the intention is not to stop them, as we know. It's in order to give to elicit from them deeper strength that they should withstand the challenge. But the challenge is still great. So wherever there's a great gilu, there's always going to be a great revelation. There will always be a great resistance. That's how it is. And the resistance is meant, like building a dam, is meant to build up the resources and strengths that we overcome the resistance. So the Alter Rebbe was doing exactly what the Baal Shem Tov heard from Mashiach, who's spreading the Torah of the Baal Shem Tov, of Chassidus. But there's always the forces that come and say, one second, is the world ready? Example, the famous story of Pinchas Karitza, that they found a page of Chassidus on the floor, and the Alter Rebbe gave the example what? What kind of example did he give? Yes, it's true, it's on the floor, but remember when the child is sick, the king's child is sick and, and, and dying, the king says, crush the most precious stone in my crown to save the child. Most precious stone is what? Splurging all the treasures to save the child. Even if much of that liquid will not get into his clenched teeth of the sick child. It'll pour on the floor, like the page that fell on the floor. It's still worth it. So he understood that there's so-called a risk. That's one of the reasons Premier Satayda was not taught in public. It has to be taught one-on-one, and all the ball is the limits. But then there came a time, like I said, a darker time, and now we need to reveal deeper Tayda to counter the darkness, as well as a taste of Gula Mashiach and its Interconnected, as the Rebbe explains in a famous Yutas Kislev Sicha, printed now in the Kutis Sichas, volume 15, Yutas Kislev. It's interdependent because when you need to pierce deeper darkness, you need a greater light. What kind of light? The taste of the Shabbos foods of Mashiach, Mashiach. 
Is there a risk? Yes, the risk is that people who are maybe not completely worthy or ready will be learning the most purest part, Mincha Selis, Selis Nikia, pure flower as the expression is used. I mean, Selis Nikia is the expression of what? Of Taylor. And it could be uh, abused, it could be um, mis- not appreciated, we take it for granted. Remember, great treasures. Great treasures. Even when the Torah was given, there was also resistance. The Malachim resisted. It took 26 generations. They had to go through Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim before they, the Kura Basel, the melting pots, or the melting, the smelting oven, before they were able to receive the Torah. So there's always resistance before a great Gili. So that would also make sense now. In addition to the first answer that I gave, that the Mitla Rebbe, the Snagdis, the challenge was about Rebbe, not just Chassidus, also, the continuing spreading can have a continuing challenge. Yes, the door was opened when Mashiach told the Baal Shem Before that, when the Arizal said, Mitzvah legal is the time has come to reveal this wisdom. But it continues to be a challenge. Every time you reveal more. So the Mitlareb broke down the next challenge, which would be the spreading of Chassidus and Eifan of Bina. That would be a second explanation. This also explains another thing. You know that in Tov Shalom Zayin, Yutas Kislev, the year was 1976, the end of 76, when the Rebbe came out and said, we're going to now print Tov Hemshachayim Beis. And he said clearly that the, since it wasn't printed till now, it was connected to Asakonet, to something. And he didn't say, spell what it was. We don't know what it was. Well, what could be wrong with printing Ayim Beis? All Chassidus was already being printed. The Alter Rebbe had sat in prison. The Mitla Rebbe sat in prison. And yet, Ayim Beis seemingly not seemingly, clearly, has something that's gu'uladik and there would be resistance. Some chassidim point out, the next year, the Rebbe had a heart attack. The second time Ayin Beis was printed was the stroke. This does not mean that we should not be learning and teaching chassidim as much as we can. So first of all, the Rebbeim took, absorbed that so-called blow, if you wish, and came out stronger than ever, as the Rebbe did in Tav Shalom at Ches. Gimel Tamas, the story is not over yet. And the Alter Rebbe Mitla Rebbe vindicated by coming out as the Bashemt of the Maggid told the Alter Rebbe that when you come out, Adarab, you should teach even more and spread even more because it's a vindication. So there are stages in the Gili of Chassidus and therefore in the resistance. And the Geula, each Geula adds to it. That's why you have also, you could say, so Hanuk is a Geula, Purim is a Geula, each one adds into breaking through the resistance of the other side of ultimately piercing the world. So the point is, yes, Torah is here to be spread and be taught. There will be resistance, and our job is to break through it. Remember, the end of the story was always never to stop. It came with a seeming setback. But as the Rebbe Rashab says, he says it's difficult to say, but you can say Yutas Kislev was like the olive being pressed in order to produce oil. Alta Rebbe was pressed, and that produced the oil. Now, we would have liked it shouldn't be with any Agmas Nefesh, not for one day, not for 53 days. Same thing with the Mitla Rebbe. But that's the process of how things go, that Golas brings out even deeper strengths, and that's why the Gula, the final Gula, will be a Gula She'en Achara Golas, because once you tra- transform darkness that resisted you, then no longer, like Shtar Shiyotzalov Irur, a, a, a a contract that was challenged and upheld can no longer be challenged. And that's another reason that the resistance is critical because the resistance ensures 
that the transformation is complete from within, not just from above. That you transform it, that even though you go through resistance and you show that we withstand it, that's the lesson we learn from this all. Not, God forbid, in any way to minimize, but on the contrary. This gula is meant to teach us to spread chassidus more and more, and that would be essentially why the basis of this program, My Life Chassidus Applied, as well as all the shiur chassidus, wherever they are in the world, may kein yirbu, until mola aris deis Hashem kamayim liyam chasim, the whole world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Chassidus will be a household word in every home, in every lip, in every mouth of every human being on this earth. To know God. And where do you know God most? Directly. Okay. Next question. How is that's a good segue? How is the Geula of the Rabbim relevant to all Jews, not just Chabad? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in Shul every morning our rabbi refers to the month of Kislev as Chodesh Geula, the month of redemption, and as a month of miracles. Obviously, Hanukkah's miracles are celebrated by all Jews over the world. But all the other community holidays, such as Rish Chodesh Kislev celebrating the Rebbe recovering from a heart attack, the 10th of Kislev celebrating the Geula of the Mitla Rebbe, and Yutas Kislev celebrating the Geula of the Alta Rebbe, are only celebrated by our community in Lubavitch. How are these special days for Rabbeim relevant to the rest of Klal Yisrael so they should also celebrate them too? I believe I answered the question with the first answer. And that is, this isn't a Chabad holiday. Yes, we call them the Chabad Rabbeim, but it's a universal holiday. It's about a holiday of celebrating the revelation of the soul of Torah in a way that every one of us can understand godliness. Remember, the ultimate goal is that this world should be saturated, completely permeated with the divine, with transcendence. So Teda in general does that. But even more specifically, Primisa Teda, that talks directly about godliness, our relationship with God. The energy, the divine energy generated through mitzvahs, through tefillah, through Teda. What is our mission? And the whole Yudasa to understand God, which is part of a mitzvah, Yedai Tayyayim, this is a mitzvah for every, every Jew and also for non-Jews in the areas that they're supposed to learn, which includes everything Sheva mitzvah, which includes God. You have to explain it that way. It's not a private holiday of a particular group. It's a vindication and an opening that now the time has come that despite the resistance, we have the access to, reach the, to learn and to study and to internalize the deepest relationship with the divine possible through chassidus. So all these gulas are not a private matter in that sense. They're universal for all Jews and for all people for that matter. Okay, next question. Why are there no photos or paintings of the Mitla Rebbe? You would think such a famous holy man he was that somebody at the time would have made a painting. It can't be said that there would be anything wrong with making a painting because we do have paintings and photos of all other, our other Rebbeim, including the Alter Rebbe. There's a photo of the Rebbe Marash too, but it's not publicized because the Rebbe Marash didn't like the photo. I don't know if that's the reason, just for the record. It says, that's what the Rebbe wrote, there are reasons. 
But if someone wants to see if they can go to the library and ask to see it, but they just don't have permission to copy and publicize it. Did the Mitlareb ever say, do not paint a picture of me? Okay, so I will say to you that you, Kivanto is the word, you've aligned yourself to the Asichim from the Rebbe, Yud Kislev, Tavshim Memdalet. In 1983, Yud Kislev, the Rebbe spoke about this. He was speaking about Yud Kislev, that one of the ways to connect to the Rebbe is by Mitla Rebbe is to learn his chassidus. When you learn your chassidus, you connect to the essence of the one who wrote that chassidus. And then he said, there's an expression, when you learn it, it's that you it's like as if the face of the teacher that wrote that chassidus is standing before you. And then the Rebbe said, Lapella, we find that all the Rebbeim we have a picture of. Except the Mitla Rebbe. The Alta Rebbe is a famous picture in Hatomim that Friedrich Rebbe writes a whole um, um, overview of what picture and the history behind it and validates it. Obviously, from the Samach Sadiq, there's a same thing, a portrait. I say a picture. It should be a portrait, artist's rendition. Rebbe Rashab, Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe, of course. And even the Rebbe Maraj, the Rebbe then wrote a footnote. Yashem, and there's also a picture. For whatever reason, it was not publicized. In addition, the Rebbe says that Rebbe Marash, we know the Friedrich Rebbe looked like the Rebbe Marash, so we, if we have a certain image of the Rebbe Marash that we can envision, famous story about it, which is not the gear right now. But the Mitla Rebbe, there is no image. Now, the Rebbe doesn't answer why Dafka the Mitla Rebbe, but he does say, but you can't say we would be deprived of that quality of being able to envision the teacher. So, how do you explain it? So, the Rebbe explained it. Kavyachal, tzaddikim demim lebeira. Tzaddikim are similar to the Creator. The Abraham, we also have no picture. And not only that, God defies pictures. And yet, anon nafshis God says, I have instilled, infused myself. Anon nafshis, my spirit, my soul, in these, uh, my nefesh, in these words. In the Torah, anoichi, that's that Rosh Hashanah, the acronym of anoichi. Tzaddikim demim lebeira. So you have to say that by learning. That you can also have that very essence of the Mitla Rebbe, and not just Ki'ilu but Mamish that as if you're seeing the Mitla Rebbe himself. That's what the Rebbe said in that Sikha. So we don't have an answer why the Mitla Rebbe is different, but we have a solution that it's not like we're deprived. Yeah. Just to bring another story that can maybe connected to this is my own connection. In Tavshech of Zion, when the Rebbe sent Bochrim to Australia for the first time, the Kvutz of Shluchim. So it was in the weeks before uh, Purim time. So Shabbos Pasha Pekudi, I believe it was that year. So the Rebbe spoke and said that uh, when the Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, uh, that the Bochrim may feel deprived because they're not going to be here. Meaning in 770 with the Rebbe, to see the Rebbe. They'll be two years away in Australia. So the Rebbe said... When the Rebbe Mitla Rebbe sent Chsidim, including his family, to Eretz Yisrael, to Chevren, and other Chsidim, they asked the Mitla Rebbe, we don't want to go, not because we don't want to go on the Rebbe Shlichus, we're missing the Rebbe, here is my mother, we want to see the Rebbe. So the Rebbe said to them, Mitla Rebbe, I'll send you my Ksovim. And he actually sent original manuscripts specifically for them, which is why in Israel, in the museum, they have actual original manuscripts. Many of them, or all of them, have made it back to the library because of the Chabad. 
But nevertheless, he sent it to them. And the Rebbe said, but what's missing? Seeing the Rebbe. So the Rebbe said the same idea. He spoke then about, uh, about uh, different types of ideas, of, of different types of growth. That's something like Sfichim. You plant them and they grow later. That by having these manuscripts, and the manuscripts are non obviously obviously you have the Rebbe himself. And sometimes it has a delay reaction, but you have the Rebbe himself. And he said the same idea, that those are traveling from here, they will have the Rebbe himself, even though they're physically not over here. Okay. So it could be, I'm just saying another Yeshlema, that maybe the Mitla Rebbe tells us that sometimes even though you don't see it directly, the physical face, the Tate, if you learn it well enough, you can come to envision it, not just Ke'ilu, like I said, but like the Rebbe said, actually, but actually like seeing it with your own eyes. Next question. What was the Mitla Rebbe's Kapelia? I think Kapelia means an ensemble. Did the Mitla Rebbe have a group of musicians that he hired to perform at Fabrengen's? Did the Mitla Rebbe himself write the famous song, or did he commission this group of musicians to write it? Is there a deeper story behind the song? It's such a beautiful song. I just listened to it on YouTube with my daughter, and we both had tears in our eyes because it's, a, it's a, such a powerful song that stirred our neshamas. So there's been written up in the Sikhs and collected about this song. Kapelli indeed is an ensemble. And of the Mitla Rebbe hired, uh, but he definitely had a group of Kapelia that would sing. And my understanding is that they composed the Nigan for the Mitla Rebbe, but the Rebbe would call the Mitla Rebbe's Kapelia. And you see actually being sung by Fabrengens. I remember it vividly. It's indeed a moving song of four sections. Four is always represents like the Alter Rebbe's Nigan, the four elements, Atzilus Bri, Yitzir, and Asiya. So therefore it definitely has a connection to that. But remember, like Bain, the Bainini was sung when the, the, when the Rebbe told us to sing the Gunim. Of all the Rabbeim, the Bainini was sung about the Mephidika Rebbe. The Mephidika Rebbe didn't compose the song. Keli Ata, the Alta Rebbe, composed. You mean Hashem, I'm not sure if the Semach Tzadik composed it or not. But not every Nigan the song associated with the Rebbe was composed by the Rebbe, but it was a favorite, so to speak. I believe the Mitla Rebbe's Nigan is also like that, with the Kapelia. And as such, since there was a special chvivus, tirekite, preciousness, that's why it's associated with the Mitla Rebbe. That's what, um, my, if anyone has more information, by all means, please share it, and I'll share it with the public. And indeed, as the nigan that was sung, I every Fabrengen, when the Rebbe would say to sing the Nigunim of the Rabbeim, this was the nigan sung. You could see the Rebbe's composure change when it was sung, so clearly it has that power. Regardless whether the Rebbe himself composed it or he was, or he commissioned it, if you wish, but more importantly that he he uh, he held it precious, it was like his it was like his nigan. Okay, why are we told the story of the Mitla Rebbe not hearing the cry of the child? And the story is a famous story that the, the Mitla Rebbe was learning. He didn't hear the cry of the child. The Alter Rebbe did, and Alter Rebbe rebuked him. You have to hear Kael Yelad Becha. Now, this was written in a way, in a very, I, I don't want to read it because it's not so respectful how the questioner questioned it. I will soon have a little surprise for you, a letter that I found very <laughs> insightful 
as well as amusing and as well as, uh, as well, an important letter about different le- questions that people send to me. Since it's anonymous, people have the liberty to write sometimes in ways that are not so reverent or not so respectful. This one I am deferring and saying that I will just read just a few points, but it's written in somewhat of a disrespectful tone, just letting you know. Um, The gist of it is he says that if somebody neglected a child today, it would be considered a form of, uh, uh, of abuse. Now, of course, Rabbi Jacobson would say, I'm being disrespectful and irreverent for telling the story. But the Rebbe once wrote, he heard the story from the Friedrich Rebbe, and I trust that the Friedrich Rebbe would not be irreverent, and I'm not being irreverent because I care about child neglect and child abuse. You're being irreverent not because you told the story. That's not a problem. The Friedrich Rebbe did tell the story, and the Rebbe told the story. It's a beautiful story and a powerful story. The irreverence is that you're completely misunderstanding the whole point of the story, beginning with the full premise. We're talking about a Rebbe here, Mitla Rebbe. He wasn't a Rebbe yet because Alter Rebbe was the Rebbe, but a son of the Rebbe, and he would become a Rebbe. So you could understand you should go the other way around. You could ask, how is it possible the Mitla Rebbe did not hear the child is the but to suggest that, compare it to a form of neglect that we see today, I would say, that's the disrespect. And I'm surprised that you didn't pick up on that. You, you already picked up that, I would say, disrespect. Not the story. The story is a very powerful story. So what's talking the story? Here's a mitle rebbe. A roya nemon. A shepherd. A faithful shepherd that would become a rebbe. And was already dealing with chassidim in a most sensitive way. He was the mashpia of so many chassidim. The same rebbe who said he could not continue Yechidus because he couldn't find within himself somewhere subtle something that someone terrible did. Why did he have to think he has to find it within himself? Why can't he say, it's not, nothing to do with me? You're coming to me for advice, I'll give you my advice. Such type of sensitivity and empathy, he didn't hear the cry of a child. And we're told the story. Why we told the story? As the Rebbe always emphasizes, we're never told the story that in any way will insult or embarrass anyone. An impure animal, the Torah will change the words and not say the word impure. How much more so a person and how much more so a Rebbe? The answer is to teach us that you can be in the highest states of Yehudi law, which means connected to the deepest levels of the divine, learning Torah, Chassidus, whatever the Mitla Rebbe was learning. And sometimes the Gedusha, that you're involved in can lose sight for a moment that there's a simple child crying. Not, God forbid, a form of neglect. Just like we talk about Nadav and Naviu. They went into the Kedush Kedushim not because they, were, they, were, they had a desire, because as the Ramayra Chaim says, their deep connection to the divine was so the deep longing and yearning. The Ava, Chashek, and all the, lang- lang- the expressions he uses. The thing was that you have to have even deeper bittle than that. And it is a challenge. That's why we say about Aaron HaKoyin. When he lit the menet, it says, Leishine, he never changed one thing. Why would he change? He's hearing from God how to light the menet, from Moshe Rabbeinu. Because when you're in that type of ecstasy, you can sometimes get carried away in Gedusha. So the message is telling us that even when you're standing in front of HaBrengen and the Rebbe, and you're in 770, and connected to the Rebbe, the Rebbe says, go out on shlichas. And say, I don't want to go on shlichas. I want to be with you. No, that's a shlichas. The neshama is in Ganeid. 
in a spiritual environment. Why would I want to come to this world? Why do you have to say, God said, come to this world. Why does it have to be forced? Because a neshama by nature wants, is, one is connected and is devoted and dedicated to its source. It's like a flame connecting to its source. So it has to be forced. The message of this is that when you're learning Teda, your mom is connected like a, a person, a Jew learning Teda, a Rebbe learning Teda, an upcoming Rebbe learning Teda, is so connected that then the deep Ratze, you have to always remember there's also a Shuv, lesson for all of us. That even the Mitle Rebbe was told by the Alte Rebbe, never forget the cry of a child. Nikaresta should before the story that Mitle Rebbe was extremely sensitive and after that, obviously even more so. That's the way we should look at the story. Who was Rab Adon of Trashela? And why would he challenge the succession of the Mitle Rebbe to be the leader of the Chabad movement? So this is a whole parsha, just briefly, being that we're talking about Yud Kislev. Rabbi was one of the Talmidim of Hakim of the Alter Rebbe, wrote Sfarim. Him and the Mitle Rebbe were extremely close. But he felt that the shit of the Alter Rebbe, he was carrying. Now, it came from L'Shem Shemayim and Gedusha. And he felt the Mitle Rebbe was going in a different direction, particularly in the way of his spilus and passion. Mitle Rebbe's Hisrachvus and Chassidus, he felt was somewhat lacking that element. Now, he was a big masculine Chassidus and a big Avid, but he was wrong. The Mitle Rebbe was the next Rebbe. It's not always what makes sense of Pisechel. Apisechel, yes, he was a good student of the Alta Rebbe. But a Rebbe is not just a student of his previous Rebbe, he's also a Rebbe. You can imagine the Mitle Rebbe was a good student of the Alta Rebbe as well. <laughs> it goes without saying. And also his son. But indeed, when you look at the Maimorim, the Al-Mitle Rebbe, they're very different style than the Alta Rebbe, much more expansive. Even the Tzemach Tzedek points out often that the Teichin, the language, I mean, he speaks with respect about his father-in-law and the Mitle Rebbe and his uncle. But you see sometimes words where he sometimes writes that the, te- the Teichin is correct, but they were not exactly the exact words of the Alter Rebbe. I'm not comparing that to, to Anastra Scheller's issues, but just pointing out Mitle Rebbe had, but that's what a Rebbe is. All the Rabbeim are one Moir, but the Oyer is different, as the Rebbe explained in the Fabrengen Shabbos Fayetzei. Yud Kislev, Tavshin Yud Aleph. There's no Shalshelis in the Moir, because all the Rabbeim are one essence. But the way Eir, Chochmeh is the Alter Rebbe, Bina the Mitle Rebbe, Samach Sadiq is Das, and so on. So at the time it was, um, um, uh, it, I wouldn't call it Machlekes necessarily, but it was definitely Eisnagdus. He opposed that approach. It came from good intentions, but at the end of the day, Mitle Rebbe is the Rebbe. Rabbi was a great chassid and great chassidus that he explained from the Alter Rebbe and so on. The Rebbe brings from Rabbi in a few places about Simpsum Lashem from Meruba, things that are not brought necessarily in the Rabbeim's Maimorim. So in a place in Ranat, the Rebbe, the Rebbe mentions him, a few other places that he is cited. Okay.
Let me just conclude with a story that I remember hearing from the Rebbe Vov Tishrei Tov Shemamalov. One of the only times the Rebbe used his hands, but I saw at least in a Fabreng to demonstrate something. So he's talking about the difference between the Alter Rebbe and the Mitla Rebbe. That um, the Alter Rebbe, when he would davened, and some, when he said, My Marim, you saw open his spiral, excitement. The My Marim that he would roll on the floor, a Pinchas raises, would go on the floor down below to hear. We actually have my modem where you see dot, dot, dot because he didn't hear every word. And by davening as well. The Mitla Rebbe, when he davened, you didn't see Begoli, the excitement and his spirals. But if you looked closely, and really the Rebbe told the story. He said, there are more ashtraimel. And there were two types of ashtraimel. One with a spitzike yamaka, meaning on top of the ashtraimel was like, like a kippah, a yamaka, that was spitzike like this the Rebbe made. And there were those that were flat. See, in the Tzemach Tzedek's picture also, it's like a little raised, like a little like a cone. The Rebbe made, so by him was Spitzik, and on top was a little hole, and the Rebbe made, if you look closely, when you saw him daven, you could see the pata, vapor, sweat, come out from the top. The Rebbe made like this, spill over like that. I remember, there's, a, there's, a, there's video, pictures of it. You see here as well. Snab Anastar was used to what he saw from the Alter Rebbe. But Mitla Rebbe was not missing his pilots. It was just a different ethan. Just like we speak about the Balshemt of the Mag, Balshemt of traveled a lot. Altonach Mekeme was by the Rebbe, by the Magid. He did not travel. And the Rebbe says some Rabbeim traveled, some stayed in one place. The Rebbe also was not traveling after he became Rebbe. So the point being is these are different approaches in Giluim. And each Rebbe contributes what he needs to contribute, fitting to what the needs of the generation are. Since we're talking already about Yud Kislev, and we're talking about, um, I mentioned before, the Sikh of Tav Shemem Zayin. So the Rebbe Taka speaks there about Yud Kislev to make Fabrengans, when the Fabrengans should be. So I said, okay, so a fitting question that fits here as well. Can you explain the goal of a Fabrengan? In other words, how do you make a successful Fabrengan? As this month is the month of Fabrengans, I find that sometimes they feel pointless. Now, God forbid they're pointless. Fabrengan, first of all, means a gathering. It's more than a gathering. It's chassidim coming together, saying l'chaim, with all the hagbolas and limits that the Rebbe instituted, sharing words, heartfelt words, teira, aveda, personal. It's meant to be communion. I mean, today, I don't want to compare it, but you find the idea of groups, synergy, coming together with friends, coming together with others, gives people power. This originates from the concept of Afabreng, which originates from the Lahakal Kehilas of Moshe Rabbeinu instituted to make gatherings, on Shabbos, Yom Tov, other times. There's a power of coming together, as, as the Alter Rebbe said, that the power of Afabreng can achieve more than Malach Machol himself. Malach Machol, the protecting angel of the Jewish people. Because the power of unity, like when a father sees his children are connected and united, it brings tremendous simcha. The great blessing that comes of unity. But that is just the etzimine of coming together. If the Alter Rebbe says, as the Rebbe cites often, even if they don't learn Teda or Tefillah or do any Davin, imagine also you have as the Rebbe always insists. Then it comes a synergy, not just people coming together, but actually learning Teda together. Aveda, personalizing it. 
emotionally, bring it into action. And we see what a fabrin can, a fabrin can change a life. The problem is sometimes they are done by rote and just mechanically, and that's why maybe you, can, you feel the way you feel. So the point here is, go to fabrengas that are meaningful. Be part of making it meaningful. And that doesn't have to be forced. It's just coming natural speaking words from the heart. It's just people sharing a story, a sentiment. Shouldn't be judgmental. It's a time for unity. Shouldn't be condescending. Some people see Fabreng as only a time to rebuke others. Talk about yourself. Don't talk about others by Fabreng. You don't want to talk about yourself. Don't talk about yourself. But if a fabreng is not meant a time to zidlin in them to rebuke one another. That's not what a fabreng is about. A fabreng is about avis yisrael, achdes yisrael, yud kislev, talk a mitle rebbe, say a word from the mitle rebbe, a story of the mitle rebbe. Focus on the rabbeim and their lessons to us in our personal lives. That would make a fabreng come alive. I once heard a line, I don't know if it's, I don't, I don't think it's from the rabbeim, but it's a nice line. There was in a, a speech, a party, and a fabrengen. In a speech, one person listens and nobody listens. Well, I'm sorry. In a speech, one person speaks and nobody listens. At a party, everybody's speaking and nobody's listening. And a fabrengen, nobody is speaking, but everybody's listening. Okay. This week is also Yudalat Kislev. It's the 94th anniversary of the Rebbe and the Rebbetson's wedding in Tafresh Peites. We're now in Tafresh, Tafshim Pei Gimel. So let's just talk about that. That's the day that Rebbe said, Yudalat Kislev, the 25th anniversary. Was it? Pei Tess to Yudalat. Tzadik Tess. Tess, yeah, 25th anniversary. So the Rebbe spoke about that this is the day that this is the day that bound me to you and you to me. So let's together work through and Ismatin the Golas means to <laughs> overwhelm the Golas, the exile, and we should see Paytas from our work, fruit of our labor. I once, um, in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, I suggested why the Rebbe said fruit. So first of all, fruit comes from marriage. Tell the Sanchal Sadiki, my simtevim, good deeds, children. In this case, maybe not physical children, but by spiritual children. Shinantan Levanecha, Ela Tamidim, the students. But another story I once heard, since it's Yudal Kissel, let me share it. I heard it from uh, the name of Mrs. Chayakon, Rebetzin Chayakon, who was friendly with the Rebetzin. She once came at an anniversary of the Rebbe and the Rebetzin to the Rebetzin's house to say hello and to wish her Mazel Tov. And the Rebetzin showed her around, showed her the different flowers and gifts that she had received in honor of the anniversary. As they're going through it, from a distance, Mrs. Cohen sees in the kitchen a really beautiful bouquet. The Rebetzin did not take her there, but she pointed there, what's that? Okay, so the Rebetzin, of course, cordial as she always was, led her to the kitchen, and they got closer. She saw a beautiful bouquet, and she realized they weren't flowers. They were dried fruit that looked like flowers. And the Rebbe said, this is from my husband, from my man. Interesting. Now, flowers are God's creation, and flowers are used, but flowers also wither, and dried fruit can be eaten. And the Rebbe used fruit, petis, a way to express the anniversary. It's an interesting uh, connection. Why did the Rebbe 
have to refer to Yudal Kislev as the day that connected me to the Chassidim and the Chassidim to me. When the truth is the Rebbe was connected long before that by being a direct descendant of the Tzemach Tzedek and having the same surname as the Friedrich Rebbe. It was obvious even to the Rebbe Rashab when the Rebbe was a small child that he was a special person and destined to be a leader and the Rebbe Rashab even sent urgent telegrams to the Rebbe's mother when he was a baby giving special instructions on how to wash his hands before feeding him. From the day he was born, he was groomed to become a leader. So that day, that, that, so that, day that connected him to the Chassidim may have been Yud Aleph Nissen. What's a deeper intuition of what the Rebbe said by saying it was the marriage to the Rebbe's and that connected him to the Chassidim? Well, the most basic answer is very obvious. The fact that he's great-grandson of the Tzemach Tzedek and had great parents and a great man. And all, but technically speaking, it was the Rebetzin that mar- he married, became the son-in-law of the Friedrich Rebbe. And you see the Rebbe always would refer to the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe de Shver, Kveik Gushas Meri Vachami. And that's where it shows that Tzemach Tzedek was the son-in-law of the Mitla Rebbe. So those were the two Rabbeim that were sons-in-law, not sons. Chosnei Kibnoi. The son-in-law is like a son. As a matter of fact, it says sometimes Abachira's son, a chosen son, because you choose a chasen, not, not a biological son. Not to take away from the biological, but there's an additional element of choosing. So that's the most likely simple connection. As a Rebbe, that the Rebbe would have been a great person no matter what. Would he become a Rebbe? Would he be considered to be a Rebbe? Not necessarily. I mean, God has his mysterious ways. So that's a Balabatish explanation. We know that in the, after the Stalkus of the Rebetzin, the Rebbe asked Rabbi Pekarski, the Rav, whether he still has a connection to the Shver, to the Friedrich Rebbe, once his wife passed away, because his only connection was through her. Yes, he would have been a distant cousin because of the Semach Tzedek, but the connection has the Shver. And Rabbi Pekarski was wise enough and understood clearly and said, absolutely. Why would the Rebbe even have such a havami? Because there's something about not just being a cousin, not just being a schneerson, but also being a son-in-law. That, that connects. Now, you can analyze this further. I'm sure there's many, many things that can be said about it. But that's what Pasha is the reason. And, um, and as a result, that's the day that bound me to you and you to me as a Rebbe to Chosid. The Rebbe could have been a Mashpia even before the Nesias. The Rebbe interacted. But as a Rebbe, the Chassid, the day that bound us and the payers that would come from it. That's the most basic explanation. Okay, now let's go. Again, I invite anyone to ask any questions um, or add anything you'd like to in this uh, context. It's always open for more elaboration and more explanation and so on. Okay, let's go to Pashas Vayishlach. And let's see what we can cover here. But I think also before I go to Pasha Vayislach, I want to um, use this opportunity. I probably should have said it at the beginning, but I'll do it now. Um, we know we're all praying. for a complete and speedy and total recovery for Henya Bas Brocha Dvarileya, tragic events that happened this past week. 
So I should have said at the outset, dedicating this program as well. So let me say it now. That I'm dedicating all the program to, to Henya Bas Brochet for a complete and speedy for Shlema, miraculous if need be. And uh, our prayers and the many prayers that have been poured out should finally pierce the heavens. Ad Mosai, the Nechama for their little child, God forbid that happened to her this past week as well. I gave a talk about this to around a thousand shluchis, just the day that it happened. So I don't want to go through all the details I discussed, but clearly our efforts and our prayers and our tefillahs and our tehillim will have impact and has impact. And we should continue always forging ahead. We don't understand the reasons for things, but tragud v'zangud is because ultimately everything is for the good. What we want is the good immediately. But there's no such thing as just bad, God forbid. Even if it's right now negative in a negative situation. So our efforts, really, by being positive and thinking positive and acting positive and speaking positively through tefillahs and tehillim and everything we're doing, reveals the inner good and that comes out in a revealed way with the Rafur Shlema and with the coming of Mashiach and the reunion with all those that were lost to us, the Gashmis. May it happen right away. So if we have time, I was going to speak more about tefillah in general, in continuation of last week's program, but I want to go to Pasha Vayishlach and then go back and forth and see where we are. Okay. So, as far as Pasha Vayishlach goes, a bunch of questions that came in, but let me just begin with one one key thing here, the overall story. The overall story is really the reconciliation, the reunion and reconciliation between Yaakov and Esav. So the story began back already in Pasha Vayetze. Pasha Teldis, I should say. In Pasha Teldis, the story is that Yaakov and Esau, already in their mother's womb, were struggling, were fighting with each other. And they're told, two nations inside of you, Rivka is told. And then we see it, and actually they were born with different personalities. Esau, Yedetzai, Ishmael Chama, a warrior. Yaakov, Ishtam, Yeshev, Aholim, a scholar wholesome one, pure, innocent one. And they clash through Pasha Vayetze to the point that Yaakov gets the firstborn blessing from him, buys it off, then so-called steals the, steals the firstborn, steals the blessings from Yitzchak. And Esau is so furious, wants to kill him. So he runs off to, by his parents' instructions, he runs to Choram where he also builds his family. After 20 years, he's on his way back by Yishlech Yaakov, Malachim, and Yaakov sends angels or messengers to see where Esav is at. And he realizes Esav is not ready for reconciliation. He's marching with 400 men to war. So Yaakov prepares in all ways. He prays, prepares for war, and prepares a bribe to appease him. 
Thank God the prayer and the appeasement and the bribe were enough. And then they do hug and embrace and reconcile. And then Esav says, let's now live, live side by side. Come, my master, come, my brother. Let's live side by side. And Yaakov says, not yet. You go ahead. I have a family, I have children, are young, the sheep are tender. I will come. So Rashi says, what does that mean? He's, he's lying again. He knows he's not going. He says, no, he is going. The end of Avadia. Yaakov will ultimately come, the Gu'ula, they will live side by side. But it'll take time. The Rebbe, in a famous Sikh of Ayeshev, Tav Shunan Beis, explains that was then. Because Esau, he first thought Esau was ready. Then he saw he's not. So he knew that time would take time for the Birudim. But now that we finished the Birudim, now we can go into the West, into France, as the Rebbe explains there, and transform and not have to be afraid to live side by side. Basically, in other words, the battle of the two nations, of the Jewish people and the non-Jewish world, Edem, the Roman Empire, the Christian world, the Western world. So there's a time where the Alter Rebbe opposed that Napoleon win the war because it would not be good for the, for the spirituality of the Jews. But now the time has come, says the Rebbe, in that Sikh of Ayesha Nun that Yaakov and Esau can reconcile meaning that we can enter the Western world and transform into godliness. So the story of Ayishlach is really the story of Gula, in that sense. So that's a general overview. Let's go through a few questions that people asked. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. If Pekoch Nefesh is so important to Judaism, that is more important than, that is more important than Shabbos and Kosher, right? If someone's life is at risk, it's a mitzvah to to drive on Shabbos, to do whatever has to be done on Shabbos. To desecrate Shabbos, it's actually a mitzvah to sanctify Shabbos to save a life. The same thing with kosher. Then why isn't a Jewish value, isn't it a Jewish value to train for self-defense? We see that this is not the case as we say, the hands are the hands of Esav. Yudai midei Esav, which means hands of a warrior. It's not the hands of Yaakov, it's not the hands of a Jew. And we interpret that to mean that Jews don't fight. But if protecting oneself is so important, then why isn't learning to fight and to protect yourself a prominent part of Judaism? Especially after our long history of persecution, until the state of Israel, Jews were mostly defenseless, and they are not halachas of self-defense, even though we are told that it is very important. Also, why doesn't the Torah discuss how Yaakov prepared for war against Esau? It, must, it just seems that he planned to appease him or to run away, but nothing about defending himself. It appears to be somewhat of a major oversight. Okay. So first of all, there are befetish laws of pekuach nefesh and defense and wars. There's, there's halacha, laws about melcham. As a matter of fact, some would, some would criticize David for being a, a warrior on the offense, not just defense. And that's not the discussion right now. The stereotype of the myth that the Jews are just weak lambs and just go to the slaughter, Rahman al-Islam, is yes, we are fundamentally a people of peace. We're all peace. Shalom is our, is our standard. Peace. We're not aggressive. We're not violent. That's not the approach. Yes, he's not the warrior. But that doesn't mean that when you need to take up arms, especially when there's danger, to protect yourself. 
And it's not correct. I'm not sure where you're getting that impression. Rashi says, Befedish, he prepared three things. Tefillah, Muhammad, Dayton, which means prayer, war. He prepared for war, if it would need be. It was the last resort. And Dayton, a gift to appease him. The first and the third worked. But of course he would have gone to war to protect his children and his family. It's interesting because sometimes I get letters why the Jews seemed so violent when it came to Eretz Yisrael, fighting and killing and so on. Amalek, the seven nations. That, but if you read there, you also see it's only last resort when there's no choice. You always leave a door open for the enemy to leave. Because blood is never good. David Amalek, talking about David, he's criticized. Even wars that he had to fight. Bottom line, you have blood on your hands. You can't build my base of Migdash, says the Abishtah. But David HaMelech, he didn't have blood. He was not some murderer. He was a shepherd. He was a gentle uh, shepherd boy. But bottom line, even when blood was necessary, that's not what I'm, a person was going to build my base. I mean, Shlema HaMelech, your son will build it. Even though yeah, David prepared all the ground for it and bought this place, plot, the place, the plot, and so on. Because that's what Judaism worships. Life. When there's danger, you do what you have to do. But we don't live a life preparing for danger. We don't live a life in fear. We live a life of bringing light to the world. If there's darkness, we'll do what it has to do. We'll do what we have to do. And last resort, there's war. The fact that some Jews develop fear or something, human beings sometimes can be that way, timid. But what does the Torah say for somebody who does not ready to go bear arms when war has to be? The Torah is quite critical. It says, oh, you're weak and a cowardly, so stay home. Don't go to war. The courage that Jews showed was unbelievable throughout history. There were times when the Nazis, Yemach Shemam, some people challenged why the Jews were not more forceful. First of all, they tried. Seeing Warsaw and other places didn't always work. And remember, the Nazis, in their shrewdness, Chamon al-Islam, Yemach Shemam again, did things to manipulate and you create a situation where the Jews were complete uh, at their mercy, with the whole country against them, almost impossible to defend themselves. Let's not go into that right now. That's not necessary to this discussion. When, the, when uh, Mayor Kahana established a JDL, Jewish Defense League, so he was very criticized by many Jews. That's not our approach. But on the other hand, there was a certain element of, yes, having a defense. We have shamedim, we have other ways that protect communities, especially when they were attacked. Very, very commendable. The question is, you don't want to become a warrior. You go to war if you have to, but don't become defined by being a warrior. That's important to always remember. Okay. Let's go to the next question. Did Yaakov and Esav's... Did Yaakov... Did Jacob have a literal wrestling match with Esav's angel? Was it like a steel cage match in the World Wrestling Federation? Did they hit each other with chairs? Or is this wrestling match just a metaphor for the struggle between good and evil? Okay, another little irreverent tone. This one a little tolerable. I would call it a little amusing the way you're putting it. Well, bottom line is, let's not even talk about wrestling federations. I think it's insulting to even mention that. In this context, this is a wrestle of history, a wrestle that represented 
very deeply spiritual things between the two nations, as I said, between the pagan material world and the spiritual divine world. That's what the significance of it is. So it'd be nice to recognize that when you write a letter, a question like this, at least appreciate it that way. I read it the way it is because whatever, I will soon talk about that. As I said, I want to read a letter. I'm definitely going to read something soon about this. So it was an actual wrestling yes, and Yaakov's hip was dislocated. That's not metaphorical. That's why Gidanosha, the sciatic nerve of the hip, we don't eat. So it's clearly very literal in addition to in general that every verse is literal. Does it have deeper spiritual meaning? Absolutely, like I just said. It has many meanings. In the Zaya, there's entire discussion. Some say this was a Yom Kippur, actually. But it represented a major battle and war. The Ramban writes, Nachmanides, that the dislocated rib was the wound that would affect every Jew, every tzaddik, through the generations, through the afflictions and oppressions of the Yisurim that we would suffer at the hands of our enemies. So it has tremendous significance. And, or is this wrestling match you wrote just a metaphor for the struggle between good and evil? It's not a metaphor, it's actually the struggle between good and evil. Two forces. Now remember, Esau is not pure evil. Esau is the twin brother of Yaakov, represents the material world, which could be evil. Like we discussed last week and I mentioned before, it's two approaches in life and you want to not eliminate Esau, you want to transform Esau. You want to reconcile as I mentioned earlier. Okay, so that leads right away to the next question. What is the significance of Yaakov's hip being dislocated? Why that specific part of the body to the point that we are not allowed to eat that part of an animal? How does it make sense that just because Yaakov was randomly hit in the leg, they were not allowed to eat that part of the animal? What is the connection? If he was hurt in 10 different places, would we not be able to eat those different parts as well? Can you explain the deeper meaning of it, the story and the mitzvah that came from it? Seems not to make any sense at face value. So here again, I'm happy to do the homework for everybody, but I would advise, and this is as a teacher I'm speaking now, why not look up some of the commentaries? Do you know how many commentaries there are in these verses? There's an entire section in the Pardis of the Ramah called Shar Kaf Hayerach, which is the, the, the Kaf Hayerach, which is the, the hip of, of Yaakov, Yerach Yaakov, rather. Yerach Yaakov. And there are many, many that talk about it. Just briefly, I mentioned before one aspect of it, that the hip represented the wound that would affect everybody, but why the hip? The Zayr has an interesting explanation, because the hip is what connects the body to the legs. Since he saw he cannot attack Teira of Yaakov, because Yaakov's Inyan was Teira, that was his whole mhus. Teira is his mind and his heart consumed with Teira. So he attacked the support. The legs are the support. Tamchin Daraisa. They referred to the legs. Yerach, Yerchaim. The legs are the supporters of Teirah, meaning those that donate and support a yeshiva. That's what he says in Zoya. Because that's equally needed to be able to support the Teirah that the teachers teach. The partnership between Yisachar and Zvulam. That's what he says in Zoya. And there are other explanations as well. Some connected even the Kaf to the Pach, same letters, Pach, Pach Hashemen. At the end of this week's Pasha, I'm sorry, the end of this month is the Pach Hashemen of Chanukah connected to the Pachim Tanim that Yaakov went 
to gather when he went over across the river and that's where he had the battle with the, the angel. There are many, many explanations for the hip. And that's why we remember it. And there are deep explanations. As I said, you can look it up easily. If you want to make it even easier, go to Sefer Teter Shlema from Rab Shlema Kasher. An excellent encyclopedia where he brings all the, all, the, all the medrashim on each verse. And you'll see there a selection of all kinds of explanations why the Yerach. Yaakov. Why is it that Yaakov and Esav cannot live together? It says that when this one rises, the other falls. Why can they both rise together? Why must there be a conflict? Wouldn't it be much more beautiful if they could live peacefully together? Like brothers should. Why must there always be conflict to the extent that even when it seems that Esav makes up with Yaakov, it says that it says that he kissed him. We say that he really bit him. It seems like they cannot live in peace and must live in conflict. Why is that? It's a very sad story. Well, I believe I answered this question. From the moment in their pregnancy, these are two nations. This represents the battle between matter and spirit, the battle between existence and the divine, the battle between the Yetzir Tev and the Yetzir Hara, Nefesh Alekis and Nefesh Abamis, the animal soul, the divine soul, the good the inclination, the negative one. So the same question can be asked, why? That's how God created it, because that's what he wants. A world where the divine is concealed, tachtenim, and make a dirabit tachtenim. So Yaakov and Esav actually represent that battle. But the battle ultimately is meant to be one, but no one that both will participate. Neshama and guf, soul and body, matter and spirit. I discussed last week the mashal of the Balshamtav. You have to camouflage because sometimes you need to dress up in the garments of the material world in order to be mevaderet, refine it in language of chsidis. Mislab is belavusham is barer. That you can't just do it from a distance. You have to dress in those garments as Yaakov did. So it touches the very conflict and the very battles of our lives. Each one of us, every moment we have that battle. Are you going to choose what is good for you selfishly or what is good for the cause? So it just plays itself out in each of our lives, and that's why we have this story. Sad story. It's not a sad story. It's the story of life. It's sad if you don't do anything about it. So it's really a lesson. When we learn Yaakov and Esau, we should be learning about the two voices within each of us. Yaakov and Esau, Hamurim, Baparsh. They're both in Teda. The Teda archetypes of these two personalities. Okay. There are more uh, questions, and I'm going to have to leave some later, so I want to do a few housekeeping. And as I said, I have an interesting surprise note that I definitely want to read. And then let me see what else I have here. There's some more follow-up. Okay. We'll do the housekeeping, then we'll do something about the World Cup, and then we'll conclude. Rabbi Jacobson Sheikh, I have been following your weekly broadcasts at My Life Citizen Applied for several years and I've learned so much from you. May you be blessed with good health to continue your important work. I am somewhat concerned that recently there, have been, there has been a shift in the kind of questions you are answering. Some people, or perhaps it's just one person, seems to be attempting to hijack the broadcast by submitting large numbers of questions which are questioning the ways of Hashem in a rather irreverent and immature way. It reminds me of the story of the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. 
Perhaps you could address the fact that mortals cannot understand Hashem's ways and that everything He does is good, whether or not it looks like it to us. I'm sure you have spoken about these ideas in the past, but it seems that not everyone was paying attention. If you still want to answer these questions, perhaps you could somehow somehow talk about the general subject without reading out the actual questions, which are not pleasant to hear. I sometimes wonder if someone has made a bet that he could annoy you, like the story with Hillel, and will keep on trying until something changes. I do appreciate that you wish to be patient and accepting, but please, could you request that questions be written in less chutzpahdik and offensive way? Many thanks and good wishes. I must say I'm very glad that you wrote this, whoever this is, and it's, uh, it's, it shares my sentiments as well. I don't think the person is going to annoy or, or provoke me. It's not uh, what's going to happen exactly. But I agree with you. There are a lot, a lot of other people listening to this program, thousands of people, and would be respectful to write in a respectful way. Not just for me personally. I don't have an issue one-on-one. Somebody can be as irreverent as they like. That's their business. But I think it's also reflective of a person being a little consumed with their own approach. I don't criticize anyone because maybe they're angry or maybe they just want to be provocative and they feel, okay, I've opened the door, there are no taboos, I'll say everything. Whatever it is, whatever it is I don't regret uh, doing it. I will be more careful. Uh, I'm always careful, but I'll be even more careful about anything that may be offensive, as I showed, demonstrated earlier. But I do feel there's probably uh, maybe one or a few people like that. I can't say. But being that this is the, the benefit of it is that the truth is that everyone can ask any question. And I personally know firsthand, literally, with names, people who may have been anonymous but have shared some of their experiences, that having this forum has been far, far more beneficial. And it's worth the time to time that you have sometimes people who are taking advantage or abusing it a bit, this opportunity. It has helped many, many people. And that's why I stick to that, that this is a time ask questions. Please do not hesitate. ChassidahSupply.com is an entire website we dedicated just for this. And um, it's free access, questions. Please use it. But I should also mention there are costs involved. So this is not, no one, no, this is not required, but optional. Out of the goodness of your heart as we come to the end of the year, coming to Hanukkah soon, Please make a donation. We are running a campaign. I'm giving you a little foretaste. It's already live. The campaign is not live. The website is live, giftofmeaning.com. Please make a generous donation, which, which helps subsidize and helps cover the cost of this program and many of our other programs. But I'll do two more housekeeping. In a, is Apply Tanya, which books, I have a program called My Life Citizen, a Tanya Applied, every Mitzvah Shab is 10 o'clock. So he's asking, which books... Is, a, is the Tanya applied based on? Where can I buy it? Is it based on the p- practical Tanya by Rabbi Miller? So the answer is, it's based on all the commentaries that we have today on Tanya. Starting with the Rebbe's commentary, and we have commentaries from different chassidim, Mitla Rebbe's chassidim, Rab Greinim, the Mashpia, and many other commentaries. A lot of them are gathered in chassidus Muvu Eres, um, so there are many books out there, thank God, that have interpretations. I try to teach in a very applied way, and sometimes I don't find something in a commentary, so I'll comment or try to explain something. So it's really a collection from all, of all of that and uh, funneled through my understanding of how to explain Tanya. That's the reality. Will there be another My Life Chassidus Art Contest? 
Well, we had a Chassidus essay contest, and the last time included also art. Please, God, we're definitely planning to have that contest as well. And I'll conclude with a timely matter. Is it appropriate to watch the World Cup? Are there any lessons we can learn while watching it? Well, being a student of the Rebbe, if you ask the Rebbe this question, the Rebbe would say, it's appropriate to learn Teir Kola Yem Kule, not Bittl Teir at all. So watching the World Cup, or watching football, or watching anything, or just in general, that's not Teir, it's Bittl Teir. So you could ask me a question like that, as a chosser of the Rebbe, my answer has to be that. Now, practically speaking, I know that people are probably not learning Teir 24-7. How do I know? It's a wild guess. But let's just say that wild guess is correct. So then, use your divide shoes. The things you do in the shoes are also l'shem shemayim. So no, to say that seeing a game is a shol shkipsatmeis, I don't know if I would go that far. I don't think that's the case. If you could learn lessons from it, well, by all means. But you can't say to go ahead and watch a World Cup because you're going to learn lessons from it. The, Ram, the Alter Rebbe speaks about Chochmah Chitzenius. And he says, those that know how to use it for parnoseh, or how to use it to serve God, like the Ramban, the Rambam and the Ramban. But that means you have to go there. If you go there and you want to do it right, do it in the right way and use it for the right thing. Are there lessons? There are sure lessons. The Rebbe himself, Shmini Tov Shemem, gave a lesson from the, not the World Cup, but from soccer. Speaking then about Sivas Hashem, playing the game of soccer, two goalposts, and each one, two goals, two goalposts, two teams equal, Zelu Umazer, with the same amount of Kaychis, like it says in Tanya, equal. And they both want to take the ball, which is the Kadra Oretz, Earth, the world, and put it either in Shar Ganet or Shar Gehen. That's the battle. See, there's a whole lesson straight from that. Same thing we know lessons that the Rebbe Rashab learned from chess. The Rebbe has a whole sikhet, Tov Shenches, about it. Lessons you can learn. So you see that there's definitely the concept. Question is, should you be playing chess all the time? So we know nittle night. In the case of the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe, we know it wasn't nittle, it was with Friedrich Rebbe. The doctors told him not to exert himself, so he played chess. That was called non-exertion. But bottom line is, that I can't say therefore, if you ask if it's appropriate to watch, appropriate to go learn Teir If you're watching or you know about it, then you can and, and then definitely do everything possible to learn lessons from it. That's the answer. And everybody has to measure themselves, talk to your mashpia, where you stand in your life. The key thing is everything you do should be elevated towards Everyone should have a very good Chag Ha'gula. May the Gula of the Mitla Rebbe give us all the schusim and blessings. Again, a complete refur shlema to Henye Bazbrochet Dvoireleya. Henye Bazbrochet Dvoireleya for a miraculous recovery. We should only hear good news in this Chedesh Ha'gula and we should be zeichet to the Gula Amitiz Vashlema Bekar of Mamish. This has been My Life Chesed Supplied every Sunday night, 8 to 9 p.m. Call Tuv and be well in a good Chedesh. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.